Thank you so much again for being here. But um, we have been going through this study. We're going to continue to go through this study um, on Sunday mornings. And um, last couple weeks have just been uh, really uh, me sharing a lot of the burden. But again, drawn from these, uh, these verses and, and this example in the first church. And if you were here last week, uh, then you've heard this. I hope you were here. And if you weren't here, uh, I just uh, want to share again what we, we saw, a few important points. Um, again, reminding us of what's important. Verse, the, 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 the first point was this, the hand of the Lord is with the faithful. And um, the second point was the encouragement or the charge to be intentionally true to the Lord is vital for health. And then number three is the name Christian should still carry significant meaning. And I, I asked the question last week, and I want to ask it again at the beginning of the service this week. Does the name Christian bear its true meaning in the world because of the life that you live? The life that we live. Again, sometimes we, we want to default to, to what other people are doing or how other people are living. And I think it's important that we see the examples in scriptures, we see the charges in scriptures, and we say, well, how does this affect my life? How does this how does this apply to my life? And, and again, we see these examples and we see that they were first called Christians in Antioch and they weren't called Christians because that was a, a cool name to, to throw on your, your life, uh, saying that you were going to heaven. No, they, they were called Christians because they were, they were targeted. They were wanted people. They were people that were, uh, their, their lives were at, at stake for being Christians. Uh, so I was asked, we were talking about, it was talked about yesterday, um, the, the church there in Kabul uh, is, is understood, and I haven't fully investigated, but I've got a, an alert saying that uh, the church there in Kabul has been martyred. Think about that. The church in an entire city region has been wiped out. And what I read was that even the, 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 the children were saying that they weren't willing to deny their faith. And you know where they got that from? They got that from their parents, from the adults. They saw faith in Christ was real, and that's what they had to follow. And so I want to challenge you again this morning. Are you living and treating the living church of Jesus Christ with utmost importance like the first church did, like some of our brothers and sisters around the world are? Right? They, they weren't willing to deny each other. They weren't willing to deny Christ. They were the church. They are the church still. The church that we're studying made an eternal mark on the world because they were all in, and they were all in together. They were on the same page. They were striving together, as Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says, they were striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's what subsequent generations saw. That's what they were blessed to follow, just like some in the world today are blessed to follow examples like that. They, they, their faith is real. Their faith is not something they just profess. It's not just something they throw on their life to make them feel better about the fact that when they die, they'll probably go to heaven. No, it was real. It's what drove them. It's what united them as the people of God. And the question that comes to my mind, again, is this. What is today's young generation seeing? What, what are our young people seeing in us who profess to be Christians? I may make some people mad today, but the, it's the truth and love. 
I believe they're seeing this, that professing, professing Christians are more passionate about how they feel about the government, about how they feel about masks, about how they feel about vaccines, or about COVID, versus how passionate they truly are about Jesus and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe the, this, this generation is seeing. They're, they're certainly seeing that worldly activities can absolutely trump the glorious bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what the church would look like today if professing Christians were as passionate about Jesus and sharing our faith, the gospel, as we were about our opinions on temporal things? Things that have divided churches today but aren't eternal at all. The first church was dealing with much more than we as coddled Americans deal with. And yet they were sold out. They didn't have the, the medical technology that we have today. They didn't have gas-powered cars. They didn't have air conditioners. They didn't, they didn't have all of the, the, the amazing blessings that we have but that have coddled us and spoils. They didn't have any of those things. And on top of that, they had all kinds of famines and pestilence, diseases, viruses, bacteria. They had all kinds of stuff they had to deal with as far as their sanitation goes, their water sanitation problems, their food sanitation problems. They had all kinds of stuff they were dealing with. And you know what, they, what happened in the midst of all of that? They were united. And the power of God worked in them and through them, even to the point of their death. When we study history, the church history, and yes, man eventually messed it up. You see false doctrines creep in the church and, 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 and false methods, man, man's methods creep in, even to the point of saying that you had to be a member of the church, or the Catholic church specifically, to go to heaven. But we know according to Scripture that's not true. We know salvation is in and through Christ alone. It's not because you're a member of this church. It's not because you're faithful to this church. But if you have salvation in Christ alone, then you understand that you are a member of his church, the glorious bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the church has held since its inception, I believe the true members of the church of Jesus Christ Hold priceless and precious the church of Jesus Christ. We'll put together in local bodies, local churches. Why? To live for him, to live out his mission, and to leave a legacy, I believe, of importance with the next generation. And so the question we have to answer is, are we? Are we leaving this next generation, these young people that are sitting in this room, are they seeing that the church of Jesus Christ, the one that he bled and died for, that's what Scripture says, that he purchased us, that he, he died and purchased us. Are they seeing that this mission, this body, this, this work is more value and is of most importance in this world? Is that what they're seeing? Are they seeing a group of adults living out the commands of Jesus when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Is that what they're seeing? And so again, we see the challenges in scriptures and the challenges we're finding are in this first church, the life that they were living, the sacrifices they were making. And I praise God that the church in Kabul no longer has to suffer if that's the truth. I praise God they're no longer under the sword, but they, are, they have received victory 
and are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe every single one of those, if they were truly martyred, are in the presence of God, and they would not trade another second on this earth for what they're experiencing. They've experienced true victory. This week I'm going to move forward and see what God has in this. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you again for what you do in our lives. God, we see the destruction in the world. We see the divisiveness. It doesn't take a very long and hard look to see how the enemy has worked and how he's still working. And I pray that we would be spiritually in tune enough to do as we just sang these songs. Lord, that we would turn our eyes to you. That we realize that we are on this earth and our lives are but a vapor. That we realize that we're on this earth as ambassadors. And not by our choosing, but by your calling, we've been commissioned with an eternal mission. And we're the ones that can either get in the way or the ones that can yield and be used to bring glory to your name. And I pray that we do the latter. I pray that you would just work in our lives, that you'd work in this moment now as we continue in your word. And Lord, if there's somebody here that's lost, that they would see the eternal ramifications of continuing the direction they're going. Lord, I pray that they would see that today is the day of salvation. Today the door is open. Today, right now, they can accept the free gift, the free offering of salvation that you offer to all who are willing, to all who would believe. But the next hour, tomorrow is not guaranteed. So Lord, I pray that you would just work and we would use this time to bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened to be in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Amazing! The church faced a problem with unity. Praise God. Verse 30. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So to give a little bit of context, this is recorded history. You can find information in secular history on Claudius Caesar. It's the same Caesar, the fourth emperor of Rome who reigned when Paul's uh, case went before Caesar uh, that we'll eventually see. And uh, there was a need we see in this church, a physical need, a real need. There was actually people who were going without food in the church that existed in Jerusalem. What happened? Again, if you remember, Saul had been, uh, he, he had been extradited. He had, he, had, he had been sent out of Jerusalem because he was preaching Jesus Christ. And the church came together and said, hey, we got to protect our brother. We got to make sure that, that, that they don't, they want to kill him really bad because now he's seen as a traitor to the Jewish religion. So we got to get him out of Dodge. Let's get him back home. So Saul goes back to Tarsus and he preaches Christ there. Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem, again, commissioned to go to Antioch because there was great growth there. And the discipleship was so needed when Barnabas showed up there, we've already seen this, that he said, man, I got to go get Saul. I need some help. I mean, this church is in its infancy. These people need discipleship. And I know somebody who loves Jesus and is willing to die for him and has sound doctrine. I'm going to get Saul. So he goes and gets Saul, and the Bible tells us that Saul helped Barnabas disciple those people there in Antioch for a year. 
And we see this famine hit and the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem needed to be met. The church in Antioch could have said, look, we've got our own problems, we've got our own stuff to deal with, we're all, you know, we, hey, so-and-so's doing without, so-and-so's doing, the, the, the church in Jerusalem can figure out their own, their own uh, solution to their problems. But if you remember back to chapter 6 and 7, this church in Jerusalem had experienced severe persecution. And they were scattered. The Bible says that they were scattered, everyone except for the apostles who remained there under great persecution in Jerusalem. But at this point, years later, we see that God blessed the work of the apostles, and obviously the growth of the church had far outgrown the physical provision that they could, that they could uh, meet there in the church themselves. So they were experiencing this severe persecution, loss of homes, loss of lives. People were displaced. People were moving all over the place. Famine on top of, as I said a while ago, other struggles like dealing with the government, government oppression, sickness, etc. All of this, and in the midst of all of this, they were still about the work of the church. They were still on the mission of God. And you know what God was doing in the midst of all of that? He was mightily blessing his people. I think this teaches a great lesson to us today as we see what this first church did and when what they were doing and how they were living their lives together in harmony for the sake of the gospel. And point number one is this, nothing should keep us from doing the work of the church. This work that we have, this eternal work of getting the gospel out and discipling those who are saved, this eternal work is only given to the church. What is the work? I just said it in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. They were told by Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you just need to know that it has hated me before it hated you. He would go on in the next chapter, in, in John chapter 16, to tell them this. I have said these things to you that in me, in me, in Jesus, in me, you may have peace. But no, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have trials. You will have difficulties. You will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Paul this Saul that we're reading and studying about would eventually write letters. And one of the letters he would write, we talked about it last Sunday night, would be to his protege or his son in the ministry, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he would write this in chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what does that mean to live godly? I thought, you know, we're all sinners and we're neat. Absolutely. But we can live a path of obedience. To be godly means to live a life that's in line with God devoutly i am sold out to jesus christ i am devoutly living for him that is the pursuit of a godly life and so the question that i, I have in the midst of all this is this does your culture does our culture drive your christianity or does your christianity drive your culture see there's a lot of things that we can be influenced by this world there's a lot of things that can influence our mind, influence our thinking, influences our, influence our speech, influence our decisions. 
And as the people of God, with the Holy Spirit, eternal Holy Spirit of God living inside of us and collectively in, in this church together, one thing should be very clear in the lives, as I said in the very beginning, of every single true believer is that our Christianity drives our culture. Are you faithful to Christ regardless of what comes against the church, whether it's famine like this or pestilence that they dealt with? Like we're seeing in our world today what about activities or anything anything what's driving our culture what's driving the life that we live and, and how we live it what's driving that I have to say something to parents God put it on my heart and said many things like it before but parents if you're a parent and here today or watching online you are killing your kids faith by teaching them that school, sports, activities are more important than Jesus Christ. You're, you're killing their faith. And that comes from love as well. You're not helping them. You're not aiding them. You're not setting them up for success. You're killing their faith. Every time the church gathers, it's not about me. It's not about this group of people. It's about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if and it's a simple showing when we gather to say we will be there and not neglect it because he is our God and nothing else and no one else. It's eternally important. So why you say that? Because it's eternally commissioned. We live like school and sports are mandatory and church is optional. What happens if that script is flipped? It used to be. I remember a day than it was when I was a kid. It used to be. It was a, a privilege, an honor, and something extra curricular. And we messed that up in this culture. We did. We can accept that or reject that or not like it or like it. That's the truth. Will we ever see a generation of parents that have the spiritual guts and fortitude because of their sincere love for Jesus that will go to their teachers and go to their administration and go to their coaches and say, our child will be at everything, every practice, every event, every game that does not interfere with our faith. He and she can't practice or play on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. And because my child is a teenager, they won't be there on Wednesdays. Why, parent? Because you can tell that coach, you can tell that teacher or that administrator because our faith is more important than sports. Our faith is more important than what they learn in the classroom. Our faith is eternal. This stuff will pass away. So I don't think I can do that. Yes, you can, because you can go to coaches and you can say, what can my child do to get better? What can my child do to play more, to help, to make the team better? And we can ask the other if it's important. 
The first point was in light of where the church in Jerusalem was. They had grown in the midst of persecution. They had grown in the midst of, of what was going on that decimated their numbers because they stayed faithful to the mission. And that growth outgrew their physical provision. But we see some important points about our text about the believers there in the church of Antioch in verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. The Greek, to send something for ministry is what's spoken of here. But today, it's common of sending relief for victims of like natural disasters. So this, this, this financial relief reflected the oneness of the church, meeting the needs of another, even racially distinct community. Jerusalem, having ministered to them, now is receiving ministry back. A later collection from Greece will be seen in Romans chapter 15, but it reflects the same spirit as this gift, that the church loved the Lord and they loved one another, and they were on an eternal mission. The Jerusalem, the, the, the church there in Jerusalem, they sent these leaders, or sent specifically this leader, they sent the gospel, they sent teachers. Now, in response to the spiritual investment that Jerusalem had made in those people there in Antioch, it does what they can do physically because of the need that they had. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 6 says this, Let the one who's taught in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The church of Antioch had benefited eternally from what Jerusalem had done. And now Jerusalem was in need. And so the church of Antioch said, yes, we will. Yes, we will. We'll help. Point two, needs can be met if we stay unified and in a right relationship with our blessings. The Antioch church didn't live only for themselves. They gave as they could. They could. This is what the first church was conditioned to do in light of the great grace that God had, had given them. Again, this is what they were, they were ready to do. They saw the grace that Jesus Christ had extended to them. The forgiveness of all of their great sins. The, 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 the purchase of their eternal life. They saw what God had done for them. And in light of that great grace, they were conditioned to give what they could give. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which, was, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of saints. Please let us help out. Please let us give. Please let us help in any way. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, Paul pointed out to the Corinthians the reason why the churches in Macedonia were so amped up to give. Hey, how can we help? How can we, how can we serve? Is because, again, they had given themselves to the Lord and to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. This is the principle of helping others that taught and help the churches early on. Even, even going back to the Old Testament, this is a principle that we see in Leviticus chapter 23. And when you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. Everything that falls to the ground, don't, don't take all that stuff up either. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the one that's passing through. 
I am the Lord your God. Don't live above your means is a common phrase that we used to say. Don't live above your means. And I want to reiterate that because I think it's such an important point we learn in this first church that they had generous hearts. They were out for the Lord and they were out for one another. They didn't have it out for the Lord. They didn't have it out for one another. That's what they were about. So I want to encourage you this morning to live your life in such a way that you can give to God of the first fruits of all that he has given to you. He gave you everything. Give to him of your first fruits. The Bible says that. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. That's just the love and an honor of the one who's given you the grace and the blessings in the first place. It's not out of mandatory, well, if I don't give. No, it's not that at all. It's I get to give. I get to share in the blessings that God has given to me. And then we should live according to Scripture so that we can not only give to God, not only provide for our family, but we can also give to others. That's the precedent. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love and abide that person? How does God's love abide in somebody who sees somebody in need and says, oh, well, tough luck. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, for as the rich, I'm sorry, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set up their hopes, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Put your confidence in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, we understand that the abundant blessings that we have, specifically as Americans, man, God has given us blessings and we should enjoy them. But our relationship with those blessings should be as such. They are blessings from God. They aren't to rule our lives, dominate our lives, or direct our lives. They are simple blessings in our life, and we should enjoy them. But he says to the rich, charge them, make sure that they are to do good, to be rich in good works. That's what they need to be focused on, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Listen, I'll put this in the notes. Our relationship with temporal blessings should be kept in the right place with the right perspective. And I think that if we do that, then we will. We will give to God the first fruits of our increase, and we will live our life in a way that when we see our brother or sister in need, we'll be able to help them. We won't be able to solve all the problems. The church came together and helped this other church. But we should live our lives in a way that we can do this. Notice that charge that God, it says, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We have these temporal things on this earth. We do. Everybody in this room, no matter where you are economically, you have blessings that are abundant compared to the majority of all of the world. And we should enjoy them, but we should not live for them. And we should not put confidence in them, the Bible says. Our confidence should be in God alone. If you have something to enjoy, say, I love our house. Praise God. Enjoy that house. I love this, this, this new thing that I got. Praise God. Enjoy it. But have the right relationship because you may enjoy it today and tomorrow it may be gone. Kind of like our health. It's a blessing. Tomorrow it may be gone. Our life. It's a blessing. Tomorrow it may be gone. Our family. Ask Job. And that stunk for him. But God used him and blessed him double. Extra. More. James chapter 4, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. And just like a vapor that appears for a little while and it vanishes away. Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. 1 Peter chapter 1, 24, for all flesh is like grass, and all the glory 
of flesh, like the flower of grass. What happens? The grass withers, the flower fails or falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the word. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So I believe it's important for us to evaluate. Again, we live in luxury compared to the rest of the world. We live in a luxury that this first church could never dream of. Right? You try to imagine this. Trying to explain to a, a, a Middle Eastern Jew who lived in, a, in an arid climate, and there's places in, in Israel that are cooler than others, just like in, in other um, you know, dry and, and desert places. Uh, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's desert. It, it's interesting. It can get cold in the winters and stuff too. But imagine explaining to them whenever it's in the hot in the desert, out there in the middle of the desert, say, hey, wouldn't it be nice to be in an air-conditioned car? Go back 2,000 years ago and try to explain that. Like, in a what? what, what? <laughs> in a what? And what does that do? Air conditioned. You know, it makes it cooler. Makes what cooler? The air. But <laughs> try to explain that 2,000 years ago so they have no idea. Well, if we can't find a car with an air conditioner, maybe we can, we can call or we can text our friend to see if they'll bring their car that can fit all of us. They would have no idea what we're talking about. You know, I saw it on the commercial on TV that I was watching the other day. They'd be like, on a what, on a what? They have no idea. They would have no idea. Again, we live, and it goes on and on and on and on. Most of the world now, again, wants to live a life like America because of the convenience and blessings we have. And most of us in this room were born into it. That's all we know. I'm not saying that we have people in this room have never experienced poverty or not gone through difficult times or gone without loss or that's how I came up. I had nothing. I'm not saying that at all. But compared to the rest of the world, we live in luxury. So I think it's important that we ensure we're living with the abundance of blessings in the light of God's grace and the account that we will give before him with what he has entrusted to us, just like the first church did. And so the question is, are you? Are you living selfishly with the blessings that God has given you? Or are you living generously like he has given to you? Do you give to missions? Do you use what God has given to you? So I can't give to missions. You can give a dollar a week. You can find a dollar somewhere and give it to missions. We will be accountable. Bible says, even much is given, much will be acquired. Spiritually, monetarily, physically, emotionally, everything. We will be accountable. The things we speak, the Bible says, every idle word will be brought into judgment. Our third point we find in verse 30, and they did so. They, they, they moved. They didn't just think about it and then say, hey, we should do something cool and help that church. No, they actually did it. They, they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Point three. And I'll be done soon. Never devalue God's ordained order or underestimate God's ordained operation and namely what God has set up with people because that is his church the church is not this building it is the people that he puts in place the power of a united church we've talked about this a little bit already it's not that men are more important as I promise you I don't think that I'm more important than anybody in this room not the pastors or more significant human beings not at all so what is it about them it's about honoring God and his design it's about submitting to him in his design so the church gathered and, and they gave so that other believes 
believers could have their needs met. That's what they did. The leaders of the church, the ordained men of God at that point in time, Barnabas and Saul, they were commissioned, and because of this, they were entrusted to take this gift from the church of Antioch to the elders, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Why? So that distribution could be made to those who were in need. That's what the Bible says. It was their responsibility. Now, the church gave. The church did it out of the generosity of their heart. They entrusted it to these men that were commissioned to go and take this. And they were to give it to the elders so that the elders who had the responsibility would ensure that it happened. We saw this happen the very first time that needs arose in the first church. Acts chapter 4, it says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. He said, look, we're in this together, man. Think about a church like, we, 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 are, we are a family, we are together. Somebody got a need, let's fix it, let's, let's solve it, let's, let's work together. And the Bible says, in that spirit, in that unity, in that heart that they had, with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay those proceeds down where? At the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Again, it's not that they weren't, uh, there weren't qualified financial people. There's, there's tax collectors in the, in the bunch. We know that. There were people that were used to dealing with money all the time. It wasn't that there weren't people who were qualified there. Intelligent people or even really wealthy people. It says the people who had multiple houses, people who had lands, and they, they sold this. There were, there were people that had money and people who had abilities in the church. Why did they do what they did, and why did they do it that way? Not because Peter was smarter. We know Peter was, <laughs> Peter was, he was fumbling the ball all over the field. They did it because he was in, they were in submission to God's order. They brought the money from the sale to the apostles to make distribution. And I shared recently that a husband is not more important in the marriage than the wife. He's not. He has a clear role, but so does the wife. Complimentary. But that husband, according to God's ordained order and, and role, is he is the clear leader. And that clear leadership is to be respected, honored, followed. And I will say this to all husbands. If you're not leading your, your wife spiritually, I would say you're not living up to the call that God has placed you, placed on you. In your home you can have a good job and provide for your family make sure there's roof over their head and food in their bellies great but if you're not leading them spiritually you're failing if we don't lead our home spiritually we're failing if I don't do that any any husband we fail our first responsibility is to make sure that we lead our family in the ways of God and just like that pastors elders Leaders in the church should be respected, honored, and followed according to God's design. First Thessalonians chapter 5, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you may esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, those who aren't living in a, in a unified way. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another 
with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. First Timothy chapter 5, the elders who rule well are, are, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and a laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, it's never fun to preach and teach on this when you're standing in the pulpit with the Bible. It's never fun. I don't enjoy that personally, but I must. And it's necessary and vital to God's ordained order and operation. And I love the Lord and I love our church so much to say, listen, the only way it's going to work is if we do it God's way. The only desire I have sincerely in my heart is to preach or teach this because it's God's word. It's God's way. It's his way to blessing a church and blessing a Christian and blessing a home. You want God to bless you? Get in line with his order. Not because it's about me or any other elder in this place. Hebrews chapter 13, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're watching, keeping watch over your souls. As who, those who will have to give an account for that. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning or grieving. For that would be of no advantage to you. Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God. Paul would tell the Ephesian elders, those who would meet him and say, look, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, but they're going to kill you there. He goes, look, none of those things d dissuade me. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm probably going to die when I go back there. I know it's going to be the rest of my life. But he admonished them, pay close attention to yourselves and to the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. As I said earlier, here it is, which he obtained with his own blood. The church was bought with the blood of Christ. Paul would say this to the Corinthian church, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Now we know that Paul wasn't perfect. Read chapter 7 of Romans. And you know that Paul didn't, wasn't a perfect, sinless leader. But he said, hey, as long as I'm following Christ, follow me. As long as a pastor or an elder is faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, striving after Christ, then follow him. Again, this is, in God's word, is necessary to ensure that the order and operation of the church is carried out. Why are these points so important this morning? Because in them we see a love for God and a love for church, his church. We see a unity in the first church that was unbreakable with problems, unbreakable with famine, unbreakable with poverty. And we see through this unity they were submitted to God's order and operation. And in this we see the church was powerfully influ influential. It was a force in the world. So much so that the government wanted it stamped out. It was changing lives and cities. The church was being used to honor Jesus Christ and radically transform regions. So I think it's important as a ruler, as a, not as a ruler, as a, as a standard, as a measuring rod, as a gauge, to see if we are remotely like that today. Or are we like a group of people who do our own things when we want them, and then we meet one day a week, maybe, sometimes two days. We say, hi, how you doing? We sing songs. We listen to whatever scripture is taught and preached. And then we go back to doing what we want to do. It's important for us to see and give back to the eternal importance of being the church. The building of God. The living God. Together, united, on mission. 
so that Jesus can make his mark in and through our lives. And our lives aren't just a waste of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for what you do in our lives. Thank you for the great grace you've given us. Lord, we live in a time where there is so much heightened, inflamed, charged culture. And I pray that we as your people will stand apart. That we would, we would be different. That what stirs our hearts and what unites us and what gives us passion and fuel from day to day is the love that you've implanted in our hearts the moment we got saved. The love that exists because you live in us. The unity that can only come from the spirit that dwells in us. And Lord, I pray that we would respond rightly this morning. God, the time is running short. You tell us that we are to redeem the time because the days are evil and we're seeing those days increase more and more. Help us as your church. Help us as your people to rise up and to be who you called us to be. Lord, help us to respond now in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand as he sings.